Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Jonah chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and and turn there, Jonah chapter 1. And uh, we've all had those experiences in our life when the uh, you know, the bottom falls out. We don't know what to do next, whether it's at the doctor's office or at the unemployment office or at the homeless shelter or you know, at, the, at, at the altar or the relationship, you know, that ended that was the relationship of our dreams and we thought it was impossible and now it's over. And, and so what we begin to think is if there is a God, we think he may not know what he's doing. And, and what might be equally true is if God, if God knows what He's doing, uh, maybe He just doesn't care. So we're left to ask ourselves a question. Am I going to trust the Lord? Or am I going to trust my control of the situation? If God can't be trusted, I must trust myself. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. If you remember when God commanded, this is in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded them, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From when you eat it, you will certainly die. There was the fruit, there was the, you know, the, the garden, and it was good. The Bible says it was pleasing and it was desirable. That's chapter 3, verse 6 tells us all three of those things. Good, pleasing, desirable. The missing ingredient was that God had not told them why they shouldn't eat it. And that's what we really want in order to be obedient. We want to know the why. God says do this, why? Just like any other normal teenager, right? I need you to go do this, why? Ours is not to necessarily know why. Ours is to obey. So God drew a line around this tree and said, all of this you can have, not this. Why? Now, it's really difficult to be obedient when God doesn't answer the why. What's equally difficult is for us to say yes to obedience without knowing why. But the Lord knows that if we were to have an answer to the why, then we would have another decision to make. Now that I know why, now this is, this is, really, this is really hard for me. This may not, be, may not pertain to you at all. But if I know why, now I'm not going to balance the action. I'm going to balance the reward. So what's the risk to me? This is what God wanted. Now I know why He wants it. And now it's less valuable to me. So the very first opportunity, Satan taps on their shoulder and says, Did God really say this? God just knows why He's trying to keep it from you. Let me tell you why He's trying to keep it. Because He's threatened by you. Because He knows that when you eat it, you'll be able to think and act and feel and adjust just like Him. And what does Adam and Eve do? When they found out the why, they turned to disobedience. 
So when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah naturally begins to arrive at the why. Why do you want me to go to Nineveh? I know why you want me to go to Nineveh. Because you intend to save those people. and They don't deserve to be saved. They're not like me. They're not like my people. Adam and Eve, like Jonah, much later like us, decided that if they couldn't think of a good reason for a command of God, then there couldn't be a good reason. God couldn't be trusted to have their best interest in mind, and so they, like we, eat. Now, I want you to see something, and if you have margins or your notebook or your app or wherever it might be that you're taking notes to send to yourself later to process... I want you to write, there are two ways to run from God, okay? Two ways to run from God. And Jonah reminds us of that. Jonah runs away from God, but if we step back and look for a moment at the entirety of the book, Jonah tells us there are two ways to do that. And he actually does both of them. Paul outlines these in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to teach on all three of those chapters, or we'll be here for weeks. But I want to give you just a couple of verses. In Romans chapter 1, verse 29... Paul is speaking to those who reject God overtly. I mean, living lives of rebellion when he says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. These are people who are recklessly running away from God. Now, later in chapter 3, he's going to say that they know, in chapter 1 he does too, they know God, but they will not receive God. So they are intentionally rebelling from the Lord. In chapter 2, he talks about those who seek to follow the commandments of God. Listen to this. This is in Romans chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. You rely on the law and boast in God. You know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. Now I want you to think about that as an indictment. He's not bragging on them because in Romans chapter 3, verse 10... He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So he looks at the pagan, immoral Gentiles and the Bible-believing, moral Jews, and he concludes, you both are running from God. How is that possible that those who are living in rebellion is the same, are the same as those who are living moral lives? Well, Paul says both have turned away. In other words, one is depending upon their self-sufficiency and their independence and their I don't really care about God. And the other is leaning on their morality for their salvation and their do-gooding, good doing. I don't know which way I prefer. I don't know. Don't matter. Their good works. How's that? Instead of a relationship with the Savior, that's what Paul is getting at. So we know that we can, we can run away from God by being immoral and being irreligious, but Paul is saying that it's possible to avoid God by growing hardened in our religious morality. Jesus tells the story of Jonah in a different way. Well, Jonah teaches us this, but in the first two chapters, he is running in rebellion away from God, right? The final two chapters, he is morally superior but equally as far away from the love of the Father, right? Jesus tells that story too. He uses it a little bit differently. This story is in Luke chapter 15. It's a classic story. 
of the two sons. I'm going to say the parable of the two sons because often, anybody know what we usually call the parable of the two sons? The prodigal son. I'm convinced the story is not about the prodigal. The story is about the other son because of who Jesus was talking to. So you know the story. The younger son, he is living. I mean, as Jesus is telling it, he is running away from the father. He comes into the dad and he says, Dad, I wish you were dead and I want to live like it. Give me your inheritance and I'm going to run away. And he spends all of his money and he lives lavishly and he buys all of his friends and all of the things that we spent our whole life running after. He enjoys all of those and they're just vanity, vanity, vanity. He ends up in a pig pen working and eating pig slop and he comes to himself. Listen, nothing will help you come to yourself like living in a pig pen eating pig slop. He comes to himself and he says, this is what I know I want to do. His heart is broken and he's running back to the father. When the father sees him, his heart is opened up and he starts lavishing on him all of these gifts given to the son. And the older brother is still there and the older brother is standing over in the corner like this. I have been faithful to you all this time. I've done everything you've told me to do and this is the reward I get. You still love him. Jesus then uses that story and illustrates the Pharisees who are standing on their high horse morally while everybody else is dying and going to hell and not rejoicing in their salvation. So it's easy to see the prodigal son running away from God, but I think it's very important for us to recognize that the older son is equally as far from the father because he was depending upon his obedience not to return love to his father, he was hoping his obedience would earn him favor and place his father under his control. And that's where I think most of us miss it. It's because while we're not running rebelliously away from God, somewhere or another we feel like our moral do-gooding awards us some kind of special credit and favor And we reduce God to some sort of a genie who owes us because of our compliance and because of our obedience. Now, there's two ways of running from the Father. Both are equally as far away from His love. So I want you, we have to ask ourselves the question, Lord, if I'm running away from you, sometimes we're running away from God and we are even more faithful to what we know. The outside looks just like Jesus, but the inside looks nothing like Him. Remember, we're not supposed to have the actions of Christ. We are called to have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to have the mind of Christ, the thought processes of Christ. Because we know that the mind, whatever the mind thinks, the behavior becomes. But most of us can pretend in the behavior And never have a heart change. How do you know? How do you know if you've had a heart change? Because a lot of us said yes to Jesus and our morality changed. But never our heart. How do you know when your heart changes? You begin to feel like Jesus. Weep like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Oh, Jonah was the prophet of God, but he's running everywhere but to the heart of the Father. And I'm afraid that most of us are going to live and die as Christians, and we're always running in one of those two directions on a roller coaster. And we think that when our morals are adding up, we feel like we're more like Christ. But the truth of the matter is, there is none righteous, 
No, not one. Ours is not to worry about all of that. Ours is to be obedient to the call of God this moment. This moment. And if I'm walking in harmony with the voice of God, then in this moment I will be able to say yes. But the further I walk away from God and I run to my own morality or I run to my own rebellion, it's going to be more difficult for me to run from that place back to obedience. And that's where Jonah is at here. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And I I told you last week there's going to be some redundancy because there's lots of different lessons. So be patient with that, okay? There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. And I love it. He says, fast asleep, because listen, this boat is rocking. So much so, they're throwing the cargo over the ship, and Jonah is out. This is not because he's tired. This is because he's depressed, and he's distressed, and he is, however he got there, he is... uh, Have you ever taken... Have you ever had a difficulty in your life, and you thought, you know what I should do? I should just take a nap. And when I wake up, I'll at least be further along down the road. You ever get overwhelmed, overcome, burdened, and it just seems like the best thing to do is just to check out. That's where Jonah's at. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Now, that's very important because... What, what the captain is saying in English is, do you not care about the rest of us? Everybody's pitching in. Everybody's doing their part. Everybody is praying after their own God. Maybe your God's the one that would hear us and you don't care about the rest of us. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. Now, the word hurled is an interesting word because it's also in the Old Testament always used of when you take a weapon and throw it into the air. And so uh, 1 Samuel talks about like a spear or something like that. So the Lord, you never think about God up in heaven taking lightning bolts and throwing it to the earth. Well, then he doesn't do that. But if he did, it would be the word hurled. Uh, it's to take a weapon and to throw it. So this sea actually is being used as a weapon by the Lord. He is the one who is orchestrating this thing. But I want you to realize something about the storm. And there are lots of takeaways this morning, so I'm not going to try to tie them all together. But I want you to think about this storm that Jonah is currently in. It is a, a storm of mercy. While Jonah is in it, it's devastating. It might even cost him his life. In fact, he's pretty convinced it's going to. But who is responsible for the storm? Now, it's one thing for us to know that God is responsible for the storm. It's another thing to know the point of the responsibility of the storm. And that is to draw Jonah back to the heart of God. Not to destroy him. The storms of life are that way. Did you know that not every storm is a result of sin, but every sin has a storm? We talked about that a little bit last week. In Jonah's case, it's a little bit different than the rest of us. I'm not going to ask, but radiation... Like if cancer patients or, or any that kind of radiation, when you have radi- exposure to radiation, the effects 
are not immediate. Sometimes they take days for you to sense the effects. And so that's the way sin often works, is like radiation. So you have the sin, but you don't always get to see the effects of that sin until way on down the road. And sometimes that by then, that sin has grown into a whole other sin. You know, this sin gives birth to this sin, and this sin gives birth to this sin, and this sin. And, and your heart is hardening all along the way. But in Jonah's case, it didn't work that way. In Jonah's case, it was sin, consequences. Immediately, Jonah is thrown into the consequences of his own sin. But nevertheless, the storm, the consequences were not there to destroy Jonah. The consequences of sin were still very merciful. Though it's going to require life change. It is God drawing Jonah back to himself. So, this is a, this is a, a, a theme that we learn throughout the Old Testament in Proverbs, especially Job. Job contradicts the common belief that good people, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So, this, uh, this, uh, this sin that Jonah is uh, experiencing, the consequences of, is also affecting those that are around Jonah as well. And you need to realize that your sin, though, and I know all of us have told ourselves that, well, my sin really didn't affect anybody but me. I mean, I know you think you're getting away with it. Nobody can see it but you. Nobody's aware of it but you. But I'm telling you, your sin affects everybody around you by the guards that you put around your heart, by the lies and deceit that harden your heart in relationships. There are some people that when they sin, it affects their relationships directly. And there are sometimes your sin affects people indirectly. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're in a relationship with somebody, but you're not being faithful in your mind or in your body or your commitments, and you think you're getting away with it, I promise you it's creating distance. Secondly, not only is it creating distance, but you are not walking confidently enough to be able to speak boldly. I mean, I, I have met so many people who have had an opportunity to speak boldly about an issue that passes in front of them, but they're muted because of the choice that they made in the same situation. So if we would walk wholly before the Lord and we would live obediently before the Lord, we would have so many opportunities. Our relationships would be sweeter. Our ability to serve one another would be better. Our ability to encourage each other would be better. And we'll be able to look a lot more like Jesus than we do. So when storms comes into our life, whether there's a consequence of our own doing or because of somebody else's consequences in our own doing, we as Christians have the promise that God will use every storm for our good. Every storm for our good. When God wanted to make Abraham a mighty nation, He had to take him through difficulties, years of wandering with unfulfilled promises. When God wanted to take Joseph and turn him from an arrogant, deeply spoiled teenager into a man of character, he put him through some years of pretty rough handling, made him a prisoner, slavery, before he could save his people. Moses, same thing. He had to become a fugitive first before he could understand captivity Spend 40 years in the lonely wilderness before he could lead. David, when he was young, he had to fight bears and lions. Over and over we see this God having to develop people through storms that they would not ask for themselves and how God uses those storms to develop faith, hope, love, patience, humility, self-control. And, and not to mention that storms 
redirect us back to the Father. When, when the captain comes down and bangs on Jonah's door and says, what are you doing down here by yourself? Why aren't you contributing to our overall good? It's in that moment that Jonah directs the story back to God. It was the storm. And most of us, I think, can agree that when bad things happen to us, the first thing we do is say, oh, God, help me. Storms are a good thing. Jonah couldn't see his opportunity to speak into the storm of the sailors because he was too focused on himself. Fear, self-pity, depression had already set in. He could only see himself. He could not see those who did not know the Lord. Okay, so last week we saw this and I really tried. I failed. I mean, I failed miserably. First service, I nailed it. Second service, I, didn't th- I don't think I got one of the things right that I was trying to say. So uh, I'm going to remind you, though. The book of Jonah is divided into two symmetrical halves. All right? this, is called, <laughs> this is called OCD redemption, okay? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go through it all like that again. But uh, the, the records of Jonah's flight from God and his mission to Nineveh. We have each part has three sections. God's word to Jonah, his encounter with the pagan uh, Gentiles, and Jonah talking back to God. So two different times in the, in, the, in the book of Jonah, Jonah finds himself in close encounter with people who are racially and ethically and religiously different from him. And in both cases, Jonah is dismissive and unhelpful while the pagans uniformly act more admirably than Jonah does. In both cases, they look more like Christ than the Christian. Sadly, we see that in the world today, in a lot of cases. One of the main messages in this book is not about a fish. One of the main messages in this book, and I want you to write this down, and I want you to write it on a mirror somewhere that you look into often. God cares how we believers relate to and treat people who are different from us. God cares how we treat people that are not like us. We see everybody as an opportunity to make them think and believe like us. But what if that wasn't the only goal? What if God is just putting people in our pathway so that we can practice looking like Jesus? God cares how we believers, how many people, and you know, I really don't, don't raise your hand. How many people do you know that may be in your life or people that have passed by, but when you see that you're not going to be the one to win them, when you see that they're not near the opportunity to become a Christian that you thought they might, you remove yourself from them because they can't be a notch in your Bible anymore. What if that was never what they were supposed to be? What if God wants us to love people because we need to love? Jonah, I want you to go to that great city, Nineveh, and I want you to preach out repentance to them, for their sin has come before me. No way, Lord. They do not deserve it. They're not like me. They don't live like me. They don't think like me. They don't deserve you. And I know you're merciful, and as sure as I go, you'll save them from their wicked sin. I'm not going. I'm going this way to Tarshish. Okay, well, if you're not going to go there, then I'm going to send you to some pagan sailors on the boat and let you practice for a few minutes. 
Do you know that Jonah gets on that boat, never mentions God once. He goes all the way, pays his fare, never talks about where he's going, why he's going there. And these men are prayer. They're prayer warriors. It's the first thing they think is going to the Lord in prayer. And they don't even know the Lord. These are prime candidates. People who would probably say, yes, that's the answer I've been looking for. In fact, we've been praying. Our God don't care. He's not answering. Maybe your God, the one we don't know, would answer. I mean, these guys. But Jonah is not looking at the world and their need for God. Jonah is looking at his poor, pitiful me. I didn't get my way. How many people do you walk beside every day that you've made an assumption or moved away from because they might be too difficult or, or they won't, you know, they'll take too much effort or they're too far away? Listen, people who are far away are prime candidates for redemption. These mariners were terrified and the first thing they, the first thing they did when they were terrified was, oh, God has the answer. Wish we knew him. I'm telling you, the world still thinks that way. Now, they don't when they're in masses. When they're in masses, they want to pick on you and make fun of you and call you names. But when the world falls apart and they experience a storm in their parenting or in their marriage or in their finances, they might peel you away if you're awake and say, what's your answer on this? My God's not answering I can't buy my way out of this. I can't influence my way out of this. I need some hope. You seem to always be a person of hope. That's that's when the people of God are most influential. Think about Jonah and them coming down here and telling the only man of God on the boat how unhelpful he is being. And I just think about all the people that have been in my life, and perhaps people that are in yours, that if they were to be bold enough would look at you and say, you have the, you have the words of life, and you are incredibly unhelpful. Why? Because we're always focused on our own sleep. This is one of the several carefully laid out contrasts between these pagan sailors and the morally respectable Jonah. Jonah's out of touch. I mean, he's out cold, and the sailors are extremely alert. Jonah is absorbed with his own problems, but the sailors are seeking the common good of everybody. We're all in this together. They're praying to their own God. Jonah's the only one on board not praying. They're spiritually aware enough to sense that this is not a random storm. They recognize this is a divine storm. I don't know how they would know the difference. I mean, you could look and you could say, well, maybe they look out and they see 50 feet on every side of the boat. It's sun shining. I I mean, I don't know. How, How would you know? I mean, are the waves out there still, but right up close? So God is targeting this boat because as we row and as we sail, this storm is following every, every direction we go. We can't get away from it. This is obviously from God. I don't know how they know, but they're aware that it's from God. They're spiritually aware enough to conclude that the storm is, and it's probably because of someone's sin. How would we know? 
But here's one thing that we know for sure, and I want this to cut according to the Holy Spirit, not my own words. They're not narrow-minded and bigoted like Jonah. They're open. They're open to even calling upon Jonah's God, one they don't follow. Maybe he has the answers. In fact, the pagans are more ready to trust that God is at work than Jonah. Jonah rubs his eyes and there's this Gentile sailor right in his face. I want you to look at this. This is verse 6. Okay, I'm going to real quick Hebrew lesson. Hebrew is not my best subject, but every, but, every now, but every now and then it's just super simple. So at the very chapter 2, God tells Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Arise. And call out against it. Okay, so, so what's Jonah supposed to do? There's two things here Jonah's supposed to do. Arise. Right? Arise. And call out to that wicked, evil city. Well, here, Jonah, Jonah hears that. The first thing Jonah does is... I hear you, Lord. I'm going to Tarshish. He gets on the boat, pays his fee, gets down there on the bottom, and he falls fast asleep. I mean, this happens. I don't know how quick, but pretty quick because he is fleeing the presence of the Lord. The first thing he hears is the captain, the boss, shaking his bed and says, Arise! Kum lek. That means arise. Call out. And he is thinking to himself, that's the last thing I just heard God say, to arise and call out. Trying to run from this. This is funny that God's voice said, Arise, go to the pagans. And the pagans say, Arise, go to God. <sighs> Call out to your God. And I think in that moment, Jonah went, Woe is me, who have I become? I think that's his prodigal son come to himself moment just before he becomes the older brother. Listen, the same thing is happening to us every day. There are, these, these people on the boat are the very kind of people that Jonah was running from. And God sent him to them. While he's running, all he can do is seek to avoid everybody who would be open to the gospel. I'm telling you, while you're fleeing the will of God, God keeps sending other people to you who need to be reminded that God can be called upon and God can calm the storms. Everybody you pass. It's a shame when the world has to look at the church and say, wake up! Surely you have the answer. And we're so asleep, focused on our own problems, we can't even hear God's call anymore. I love it that... Well, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 7, okay? I'm just going to read it. I'm, not going, to, I'm going to try not to commentary much. But verse 7 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Don't judge him too much. There were lots of people who cast lots back then. Oftentimes, God would actually orchestrate the lot so they would know how it was cast. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? In other words, are you worth it? What is your identity? What is your identity? These answers to these questions will help them understand Jonah a whole lot more. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are, what, of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? We cannot believe that you put our lives in jeopardy because of your own disobedience. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because Jonah had already told them. And then he said to them, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? In other words, they recognized there's got to be a sacrifice of some sort to appease your God. And the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you. And I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, Jonah said, here's your answer. Toss me overboard. I will tell you, I don't need Jonah's permission at this point. That's the first thing I think. Jonah, this is your fault. It's your sin. Heave ho! I don't need Jonah to say, I think if you throw me in the water, I'll be, you'll be okay. So what do they do? They're actually showing more faith than me. They row even harder. They're trying to beat the odds here to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, not their God, the Lord, the God of Jonah. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah. In other words, Lord, forgive us for what we're about to do. I know a lot of people who pray that way. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging and the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And what did they do as a result of Jonah's ministry? They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because these Ninevites are going to become believers. And so he runs to the pagan nations and he gets on board a ship with a bunch of pagan Gentiles and he falls asleep and when he wakes up, his sin... Jonah, I mean, can you imagine? This is the evangelist. This guy cannot mess up bringing people to Jesus. I mean, even if he just throw me overboard, everybody on, the board, everybody on board got saved. You talk about the man with the, you know, golden touch. Wow. The, the primary indictment for Jonah, from the, from the view of the captain of the ship anyway, is that, is that even though Jonah was on board as a, as a traveler, uh, He wasn't interested in the common good. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, it says that that we, Israel rather, should pray for the welfare of the city that God is sending us into exile. 
So whatever happens good in the city, in the community, in the nation is good for God's people. Now, while we don't live here in this world anymore, we live in another kingdom already. I don't mean to be mysterious. For those of you who don't understand that, I can explain that at another time. But we have already pledged our loyalty as citizens in another kingdom. Well, because that is true, that does not mean that we shouldn't still stand in the gap for those who are still in it. It's why God left us in this kingdom, living in another kingdom, so we can be ambassadors of His kingdom while we're still here. In the world, not of the world. So we should still be seeking the common good because the common good... Jesus even talks about this in, in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount when He says that they will see our good works and glorify the Father. There should be good works manifested from the people of God. This is working for the common good. We should pray for the city. Our goal is not to see the city redeemed because the city cannot be redeemed. It doesn't belong to this kingdom. His kingdom. It can't be redeemed. But we should be recruiting worshipers out of this kingdom. Translate them into this kingdom. We should be working diligently to focus on people, not on programs. Certainly not on politics. There's no hope in any of that. The hope is in redeeming people. Working for the common good. What is the common good? God's kingdom is the common good. We should be helping people find and follow Jesus and His kingdom. Not trying to fix all of our problems in politics. They won't be fixed. It's always, folks, it's always going to pendulum. If you get it fixed, it's problems for somebody else and they're going to fix their problems and you're going to fix your problems. All the while, we're going to be distracted from a kingdom that's eternal. We should be working for the common good. We should be loving people and helping them see the fruit of the Spirit at work in our life. Because the common good, working for the common good, being active in people's lives is the same then, gives us opportunity to reveal common grace. And common grace, God loves all of us. Amen? He loves us, not because we are His, uh, because we're Christians, but because He loves. He doesn't love you more because you're a Christian. He loved you equal before you were one. Well, listen, I, that's quiet. I mean, that's like crickets in here. That just means we got a lot more older son in us than we thought we did. God doesn't love you more because you're a Christian. He can't love at different degrees. It's common grace. God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. Right? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Right? That means if there's ever been anything good happened to you, whether you're a believer or not a believer, that was God. If it's good, its origin is God. Period. And the world needs a mechanism to understand that. This world doesn't offer them that. But watching Christians work for the common good opens their eyes to the common grace. And when they're able to see common grace, that God is good, then they're able to see special grace, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the ultimate love. They'll never be able to see that in you if they don't see common grace. And they'll never see common grace if they don't see common good. And they won't see common good if you're fast asleep. God wants to use you, folks. He saved you to use you for His glory. He saved you to call you to wicked people not like you. 
And even though you said you weren't going to go to those people, he's going to put sailors all around you. Don't make the world come and say, if you'd have only told me, why didn't you tell me? Wake up. Maybe you have the answers. Wake up. Don't let the world come and rebuke the church and say, wake up. Don't be standing in the day of judgment and have all of your co-workers and all of your neighbors come through and say, how could you not have shaken me? How could you not have told me? So when you're in the storm, don't focus on yourself. You need to, we need to be focused on bringing peace to people who are not like us. And everybody's in a storm, but God's mercy is in the storm. So I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me. If you... And this morning, I want, us, I want us to pray something very specific. Uh, and I'm, I, don't, I don't mean this to sound, I haven't said this out loud. I don't know how it's going to sound. So give me a little grace this morning. If you don't have people that are different from you in your life, you're probably not doing it right. All right? You, you should have people that are not like you. People who don't believe like you. People who don't have the same color as you do. People who don't have the same background as you. You, you should have some diversity in your life. Uh, and if you don't have diversity in your life, then you're only going to get so sharp. So I want to encourage you to be praying about how God would use the diversity in your life and that you would be free then to maybe be a little less fearful of people not like you. I mean, what stops you from talking to a Muslim on an elevator? What stops you from waving? I mean, I know they're not like you. That means they're prime candidates for Christ. What, what stops us from feeling as comfortable with people of a different skin color than we do our own. Why do we so quick to snap judgment? I'll tell you why. Because we have a little Jonah in us. And when somebody says, what's your identity? The first thing we start with is, I'm a Hebrew. Well, I think sometimes, sometimes we, we kind of equate patriotism with Christianity. And they're, not, they're not the same thing. People that are from a certain place doesn't mean that they're less human and less loved by God. God uses us as missionaries to them and that's the ultimate goal is then for Jonah to be the missionary. He's the one who is, whose theology is sound. But even though his theology was sound, his practice of it was pathetic. Don't settle for a great theology. Don't, don't settle for a systematic theology and your doctrine is all perfect without acting on it you might as well be in the bottom of a boat asleep so what I would like for you to pray this morning is don't be a weirdo okay when I say this that's not what I want you to pray <laughs> but seeking the, seeking the some of you are like <laughs> Seeking the Holy Spirit. This week, just be a little less fearful of people not like you and kind of kind of just step in, just kind of step into that space a little bit and engage with people that are not like you. Be just a little less afraid and trust that the Lord might be bringing you into their storm. Live holy so that you can have the 
confident boldness that's necessary. But let's seek the common good. You know where we're all in the same boat together comes from? Jonah, chapter 1. Seeking the common good so that we can find common grace. Common grace gives us an opportunity to extend that special knowledge of grace, of who Jesus really is. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word this morning. And I pray that we would not be caught asleep down in the hole of our life, hoping to escape all the difficult parts, hoping to wake up when we hit the shore. Lord, may the world not be the one who captivates our attention. May you be the one. Wake, O sleeper. So Lord, help us to be just a little less afraid. Help us to be more confident in your sovereignty, in your storm-making, crafting. Help, Help us to be so confident that we're not worried about what sins we may have committed and we're dealing with the, the you know, ideas of repentance that hold us back. But Lord, may we already be living lives of repentance so that we can be propelled forward. And so Lord, help us to walk holy, worthy, lovingly. And help us not to be satisfied with just being moral people, but help us act out of love for the Father. In Jesus' name I pray. We hope that this message has brought you closer to finding and following Jesus. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.